Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down Swanfield and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you shawny man? Hello there and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. It's Kieran Murphy here, sitting in for Owen McDevitt. And I've been thinking, Ken, say hello, Ken. Hey, yeah, Kieran, how you doing? Good to see you. I've been thinking, Ken, about the most earth-shattering result in the history of world football. Uh, 7-1 in a World Cup semi-final yeah. at home. I mean, you're, you're not going to live that one down. You're just not going to live it down. Uh, no. Fernandinho was being asked about this last month. Yeah. It was probably the lowest point of every single one of the Brazilian players involved. I don't think I exaggerate when I say we will probably have to answer questions about that game for the rest of our lives. Yeah. I mean, the repercussions of that result uh, continue to reverberate. I mean, look at the FIFA Team of the Year announced just last Monday evening. Uh, only two of that Brazilian back four made the team. Wait a minute. Two of the Brazilian back four that very day made the free well, no, team that's, of the year. That's not true because Thiago Silva was suspended. That is true. Thiago Silva was suspended, and that's presumably one of the reasons why <laughs> why they conceded the seven maybe true yeah. goals. But I mean, you know, about that, was it really so bad just to play badly in one very important match? Mm. Um, what about all the good performances from David Luiz? Uh, it was weird because the David Luiz thing really did offend a lot of people. Um, him making this uh, team of the year. Yeah, well, I think I think uh, he just sort of offends a lot of people. Anyway, I don't know what it is about him. I mean, he is a little bit annoying. Um, his habit of having those uh, photographs taken with his tongue sticking out always. It's like mm. his personal trademark. I find that a little bit. I find that a little bit annoying. As a defender, though, I've always quite liked him. I mean, okay, he's... He's not a an old fashioned defender, mm. um, but he is a guy with a, with a, I think a lot of ability. You know, I, I think I don't know. We'll, maybe we'll maybe we'll get into this in a bit more detail with uh, Carbo Marcotti. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've uh, I've always had a bit of affection for David Luiz. Thiago Silva. I mean, maybe maybe his importance is underlined by the fact that once he was taken out, they lost seven one. Of course, he then came back in for the match against Holland in the third place uh, playoff. Uh, and Brazil crashed on only 3 0 on that <laughs> occasion. With Thiago Silva, as far as I remember, committing a foul, which should have had him sent off and given away a penalty after about 10 minutes. But instead, he got a yellow card and I think a free kick outside the box. Um, I think that's what happened. Uh, it's hard to remember. Mm. I mean, I, I, maybe we should just name the. Because, I mean, the FIFA Pro Team of the Year, I mean, it's not something that you should get too worked up about, I think, at the best of times. But mm. uh, the team only is Manuel Neuer. Uh, Philip Lamb, David, David Luiz, Sergio Ramos, Thiago Silva, uh, Andres Iniesta. I know. Strange. Andres Iniesta, uh, Tony Cruz, uh, Angel Di Maria, and then Messi, Ronaldo, and Arian Robin. Is, yeah, is Iniesta not completely poxed to make this team? Um, yeah, but you know, I think it's a case of um, you look at, um, it, you have to pick from the 55 man shortlist, right? Mm. That's how everyone has to pick. Uh, Everyone has to pick from that. I mean, you know, you look at the defenders on that. Um, there aren't really 
I mean, which, you know, what uh, Diego Godin, you could maybe argue, would have a would have a case. Um, Mats Hummels, maybe. I mean, Mats Hummels was an important player for uh, the World Cup winning team. Um, you know, when you go beyond that, I mean, Javier Mascherano is listed as a as a defender. Of course, Roy Hodgson took some heat for picking mm. uh, Javier Mascherano as his number one best player in the world. Although it's clear that what Roy Hodgson was doing was basing his picks on the World Cup. You know, he obviously took the view, and it's it's, it's obvious. Mm. And although I think, in fairness, I'm not. I think last season maybe he didn't pick either Messi or Ronaldo either. I think he maybe one of those. Oh, it's time for someone else to have a go. Even if they are the best, it's time for someone else just to just to break it up a bit. Not really, you know. It's not really the best way to go about choosing the best player in the world. No, if the, if he's the best, if they're the best, then then they should probably win the best player. You're in the world. overthinking it there slightly. But Roy. if uh, you know, if you were to take, I mean, that okay. So so in a non World Cup year, it doesn't really make much sense. But in a World Cup year, which in which Ronaldo got knocked out in the group phase and uh, didn't really play well, I think set up. A goal against the United States, and that was pretty much it, I think, from from Ronaldo. Did he? I can't remember him scoring. Uh, Lionel Messi, okay, was named the best player in the World Cup in a uh, you know a bad decision. Um, <laughs> he wasn't the best. I mean, he was he was arguably the best player in the group phase of the World Cup, but not mm. uh, the World Cup overall. Javier Mascherano may well have been the best player in the World Cup. I mean, no player did more to get Argentina to the well. Messi maybe did as did as much, but you know, Mascherano was the was holding that Argentina team together, a team which really wasn't all that good, which had injuries to key players, Di Maria, Aguero, Messi maybe not fully fit himself. Um, Mascherano was really an inspiration. So if Hodgson is basing it on the World Cup, I don't see a problem at all with putting Mascherano. As number one, and and it seems to me clear that he is because he picked Nora and Lamb. I think were the other two. Mm. Um, you know, Manuel Nora could only really have been in there on the basis of his World Cup performances because he's had so little to do. Uh, really, I mean, it's very little to do uh, for for Bayern Munich um, all season. I just don't see how he's got enough action to be in the top three in the world. And for Bland, the captain of the World Cup winning team, you know, they seem like reasonable choices to me. Mm. Uh, right, well, sure, we'll just get straight into your uh, report on sport and we'll discuss the David Luiz uh, Farago with Gabriela Mercati a little later on the show, as you've, as you've mentioned. So what do you got for me, Ken? So uh, the Guardian have a big story today about um, a European scout for Manchester United, actually Danish scout, Torben Akjar, uh, based in Copenhagen, who has been sacked um, after uh, the Guardian uncovered uh, well, uncovered, I suppose, isn't really the isn't the word. Noticed um, his Facebook posts uh, expressing certain political views, uh, certain racist political views. It has to be said. Um, so they they called him up and, and said, "What's the story on his Facebook?" Uh, mm. Did I mention on, on his Facebook? Right. So, what kind of stuff? Not a lot of writing? uncovering required here, as you as you've suggested. Well, once you once you're sort of looking at the Facebook, it's all pretty much there. So uh, he says things like, uh, um, you know, it's a, there's a lot of kind of Islamophobic type stuff. He's one of these guys with a who's got a big problem. He thinks that that Europe is going to become the caliphate. He thinks uh, he thinks that that we're on the verge of a of a Muslim takeover. Uh, so he's saying stuff like. Um, you know, he's he's supporting the uh, Dansk Folke Party, the Danish People's Party, which is the sort of right-wing populist party in Denmark. Uh, picture of pigs with the caption, it's time to deploy our secret weapons against Islamists. Um, he's uh, He's got ver- uh, various messages about Eastern Europeans as well. Doesn't like Eastern Europeans either. Um, in a in a comment thread, or he, he posts up a, uh, a story... He posts about a story where someone's like poured water over a homeless person in Copenhagen. Um, and he says, yeah, this is great. You know? Some other guy says, well, what do you mean? Uh, that's not great. And the guy says, you must be too integrated in the red Copenhagen mafia if you don't think all that Eastern Europe er, uh, Europe dirt and shit needs a kick in the behind over the border. Yes, in cases like this, I do generalize. This isn't some hardworking Polish guy in a building site or a Czech taxi driver. This is hardcore gypsies from Romania, Bulgaria, etc. No mercy should be shown. I don't approve of violence, but a glass of water hurts nobody. Um, uh, it's I do... all extremely dim stuff. 
It is. Uh, he goes on um, uh, talking about the Charlie Hebdo um, attack. Um, uh, his friend says, uh, I hope they France will throw all the rest of that shit they have in their country out. Couldn't agree more, says uh, our man. He reminded us, just reminded ourselves, was working for Manchester United in the capacity of a European scout uh, until uh, either today or yesterday. Couldn't agree more. Let's hope other countries, including our beloved Denmark, follows that example efficiently. Um, he uh, made quite a big deal about on the same Facebook page about his uh, connections with Manchester United, photographed with Nemanja Vidic and Robin van Persie. Oh, please, Nemanja and Robin. He doesn't. He's he's on first name terms with these uh, Manchester United superstars. Um, uh, you know, Denmark should kick immigrants out. Uh, Caroline Wozniacki, Danish, born to Polish parents. Um, uh, she uh, apparently borrowed Serena Williams's phone and took some photographs, and then Serena found the photographs on the phone. After you know, she didn't tell uh, Serena that she took her phone. Not a coincidence. She's Polish, and another one about uh, how you know some butcher had um, had been done for secretly selling pork uh, products to Muslims. So the wise one fools the less clever. Now. He describes a mosque also as a conspiracy potential prayer shop. Okay, so the guy's lost his job. Manchester United immediately um, sacked him once the Guardian made them aware of uh, of his stuff. You know, he said, oh, I did. When the Guardian um, called him up about it, he admitted that he'd written some of them, um, but denied he'd written others. And then mysteriously, they all disappeared within minutes. They were all deleted, mm. presumably by the same hacker who, who posted them. You know, um pretty amazing you know when you consider although is maybe not that amazing you know you think a guy is a, is a is a kind of a scout he's working in football it's a very it's a very international business um you would have thought to have these types of uh weird hang-ups and phobias would be a disadvantage to somebody in that job um but still evidently people have them i suppose it reminds you a little bit of what happened with malachi Mackay. um who is obviously back in work. Well, yeah, there is the, the difference that uh, this guy, he's posting them as publicly. Publicly. This is the thing you know, I Malachi really don't McKay's, understand. Yeah. Mackay was, was saying stuff in private text messages that he didn't think uh, were going to come to light, which is not really to excuse what he was saying, but at least... It, it, ca- it, it casts that, in a different light, at least. Yeah, well, at least he's got some grasp. I mean, I, d- I don't know if Malachi mckay has got a Facebook, but I certainly don't remember him saying anything in public along these lines. Mm. He knows what's public and what's not really suitable for public consumption. Whereas this guy, I, I, as in, in common with so many people, I find it difficult to understand how people don't seem to realize that this is all sort of published material. You know, you can't... It, it's, I find it amazing that somebody who was who was working for a company like Manchester United or was aware... You know, I'm, you know, oftentimes someone working for me, it doesn't mean necessarily this was his only job. He may have been mm. working for them part-time on some kind of basis and whatnot. You know, but it's just... To be honest, any company, I mean, it doesn't really matter whether it's Manchester United. I mean, we're talking about it because he works well, for no, Manchester United. Well, no, it, it does matter that it's Manchester United uh, in the sense that it's more likely if you work for a company with a high profile like that, then, uh, you know, if you're also publishing this kind of stuff, that it will kind of come to light mm. um, I mean it's just uh, I mean you, you might you might say well is there a freedom of speech issue here no there's no freedom of speech issue I mean you can say whatever he likes you just can't then work for <laughs> you know whoever he likes you know it's a kind of a choice it's a trade off you know what I mean um, uh, I suppose uh, I mean we were talking about Malcolm and obviously people have different ways of evaluating these things I mean this Jack Jack Hayward the former owner of uh, Wolves Sir Jack Hayward I should say, mm. um, died recently, and, and there's a very affectionate profile of him written in the Guardian, uh, kind of a, an obituary piece written by Paul Wilson, and he says, um, you know, he's kind of comparing Hayward favorably with the new generation of owners in football, and he says things like, uh, Hayward just wanted to help, and that's what he did. He put in a lot of money, didn't take a lot out, and he always managed to look as if it was the club doing him a favor rather than the other way around. You didn't see much of that sort of class in football any longer. So, fond regards to to uh, Jack Hayward, who lived a long and full life. Um, there was an interview Jack Hayward did in 2003 with the Financial Times, where uh, the, inter- the interviewer, first of all, is pouring out some mineral water. Hayward says, I hope that isn't Perrier. 
Uh, and then he looks at the label. Oh, it's Malvern water. You know, that's okay. He didn't like Perrier because it's French. Uh, he doesn't like... Uh, he doesn't drink French wine or mineral water. He bans foreign vehicles from even entering his estate in Sussex. Uh, I'm very pro-American. This is a quote now. I think they're a great nation, but I am anti-French. I'm also anti-German. Anti-all Europeans, actually. You see, I have this terrible illness called xenophobia. He laughs loudly like a mad old colonel. <laughs> now, if he was to say that today, mm. would he be banned from all footballing activities? I mean, assuming he was still the chairman of Wolves. If he was to say, I have this terrible illness called xenophobia. I don't like French people. I don't like Germans. Uh... Do you think he would like Dave Whelan be banned from all footballing activities? I actually think he he very well might be. Yeah, uh, well, I I don't see how you could stand over the Dave Whelan ban and not uh, and not ban him then. I imagine myself as the Cecil Rhodes of the twentieth century. Said Jack, we're talking about mad old imperialist Cecil Cecil Rhodes. Uh, his dream was to enslave the entire eastern seaboard of Africa from the Mediterranean down to the Southern Cape. <laughs> uh, if I had my way, I'd form my own party. Far more right-wing than Margaret Thatcher. I laugh, thinking he is joking, says the interviewer, but he isn't. I'd bring back national service, the scaffold, the cat and nine tails, the empire. Places like Sierra Leone and Nigeria were so much better off under British rule than they are now. Um, you really don't see class like that in uh, <laughs> football. The At least not in uh, public uh, mm. communication. Uh, Possibly in text messages, I don't know. But we often don't get to see people's personal text messages. So, look, that's Jack Hayward. That interview is from 2003, and I suppose even in that time, things have changed. Mm. He uh, just uh, he, he struggles to pronounce the names of foreign signings. This is a joke in here type thing. Calling Okoronkwo from Nigeria Oranoko, and another player, Wapa Wapa. So, uh, you don't see, as we said, that type of class. Mm. What about Ronaldo? He's had a... I mean, he's been crowned Ballon d'Or yeah. winner for a third time this week. He's have he's having a good week, surely. What did you make of his strange sort of shout of triumph? What was he saying? Seem? Yes, was it? I'm not yeah, sure. I, I'm not entirely sure. He did it was quite strange, though. It was. It was. Everyone was sort of taking a bit of yeah. it. He's like, no, oh, you just you didn't quite. Mm, that was a bit. I'm not sure about that. Still, you know. Who can begrudge him his uh, his award? But Ronaldo he did a little interview where he's talking about you know how he got to where he is. Um, he says when I moved to start playing abroad, I begin see there's a kind of a theme that emerges in these answers. When I moved to start playing abroad, I began to see things differently. I've absorbed the cultures from three countries, Portugal, England, and Spain. In England, they're very professional and punctual, and that's something I value a lot. It's a fair country, and the people are educated and friendly, and that's something I love about the place. In Spain, the people are positive and value what they have. In Portugal, we should try and learn something from both of them. So, that's, that's, that's him on international experience. Here he is on, uh, what's he talking about? Uh, looking after yourself. I don't dedicate my time exclusively to training, but I do things so that I can improve and so that I, that I can continue playing at a high level until I'm 35 or 36. That means you have to give up a lot of other things. There are a lot of temptations and it's difficult, especially in the culture we live in, in Spain. It's a very open society. The people here are happy living day to day. They're always happy, in spite of the difficulties they might have. That was something which surprised me about a country which borders Portugal. The mentality is completely different. <laughs> so... It sounded to me like he was being harsh enough on Portugal. It there. does seem a little harsh. By by process of implication, we can work out that the Portuguese are sad, s not happy, miserable yeah. complainers who are late, badly educated, and uh, unfair, uh, who don't value what they have and uh, can be relied upon to. Uh, a great seafaring nation, though. He didn't mention that, though, did he? He didn't say anything about that seafaring uh, mm. comparing. Is it? Three great seafaring nations, in fairness. So I don't even know if Portugal would uh, would necessarily. They don't even have um, that on England and Spain. No, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, but there you go. That's that's Ronaldo. He's certainly not one to view the homeland with rose-tinted glasses. He has been away from Portugal for quite a long time now. You would think that, you know, there would be a sentiment, uh, you know, a, a big streak of sentimentality running through his. Well, he did. He did apparently used to get. Um, get a terrible slagging in the Sporting Lisbon Academy because of his uh, accent, which apparently they consider hilarious. Mm. He's got this, I don't know if there is an equivalent in Ireland, Valencia Island? <laughs> is Madeira the Valencia of uh, Well, I think the Akil Portugal. Island, Aran Island, 
Valencia Island accent are all quite similar to the land masses ex- that are adjacent to them. So May- I don't think there's a there's a uniquely island. Maybe the the Iron Island, whatever the far one is, that's yeah. uh, that's the equivalent of where Ronaldo was from. And, In his ear. And when he when he came up, imagine. Uh, uh, a brilliant young prodigy from Inishir, uh ended up in the Bose Academy, and uh, and everyone was was laughing at him because of his uh, accent. That's what Ronaldo had to grow up with, mm. and uh, I don't still know, working it's... through that uh, those frustrations, obviously. Yeah. Judging by those, uh, very quiet transfer window so far, Ken. Yeah, well, I mean, there's unless you can't Man City um, spending a record for an African player on Wilfred. Bonnie, yes, we'll, talk, we'll, talk, one, yeah. we'll talk a bit about that. Yeah, not, not much. We'll talk a bit more about this January transfer window and the uh, the kind of cliche about it that, oh, it's a terrible time to do business. Um, uh, maybe a bit more on Monday. Uh, for now, though, there was, we should mention the FA Cup game between West Ham and Everton, which was, at least for the last 30 uh, minutes or so, honestly, one of the best games I've ever seen. This, this was a game which was... A real cup tie, Ken? Oh, well, you got 10 men, uh, uh, Everton have 10 men, they're winning. Uh, West Ham managed to equalise uh, against the odds with a substitute scoring with his first touch, obviously. Mm. In the second period of uh, extra time. Teammates fighting each other, uh, Mark Noble and James Tompkins. Um, it seemed that Noble actually just took exception to James Tompkins' unbelievably inept clearance, which almost resulted in a goal for Everton. He just essentially kicked the ball 10 yards in front of him straight to an Everton player who uh, nearly set up a goal. Uh, it was handbags since I'm out of ice. Uh, it eventually decided 9-8 on penalties after by the goalkeepers. The goalkeepers in sudden death. Uh, Everton's goalkeeper missing and West Ham's goalkeeper Adrian, uh, who, who went second, throwing off his gloves flamboyantly before booting the ball <laughs> into that. There's a nice element of theatricality to it, all right. It had that thing, it, the, which I remember seeing in the, in the Middlesbrough-Liverpool shootout early in the season, which finished, what, 16, 15, or 18, 17, or 19, I can't even remember what it was. It was ridiculous. Why do goalkeepers in those type of shootouts keep moving before the ball is kicked? Stop moving. Loads of them are going down the middle. Some, some, some of the players are so nervous and shaking. It's all they can do to, to get the ball in the air, in the place in the goal, which is furthest away from any of the woodwork, <laughs> which is to say right at the bottom in the middle. So many of the penalties are going there. Just stand there. It's, uh, this uh, Robles, particularly the Everton goalkeeper, just kept jumping out of the way. And you just thought, what? Um, but eventually he paid for it um, in missing, missing his own penalty. But it, there was the notable thing about the game was Sam Allardyce, once again, and this is before the game, taking the opportunity to just um, uh, talk about his own superiority to Roberto Martinez. Um, I'm a bit more flexible than Roberto. He's a total believer in one style, uh, says Sam. Uh, you know, he says, uh, you become flexible as time goes on. Flexibility teaches you that you have a philosophy in the way you want to play, but if that way of playing doesn't suit the players, you cannot keep that philosophy. Um, Sam Allardyce, though, does have a philosophy in the way he wants to play. He tries to stick to it all the time. I mean, we all know what a Sam Allardyce team plays like nearly all the time. I mean, he's kind of giving himself credit for uh, essentially thinking of uh, small tactical stratagems to counter an opponent's specific strengths. You know, he might do something particular on set pieces. He might try and attack one side of the field more than the other. You know, there's things that that he does depending on the opposition, which Roberto Martinez doesn't really, in Sam Allardyce's view, tend to do. He's he's like, no, it's about us. You know, we've got to go out there, dominate the ball, dominate possession, create. Which, by the way, I've never really seen a Sam Allardyce team do. They're, he's not flexible enough to do, to play that kind of football. He plays always the kind of the big sound football that we know. Uh, but apparently experience teaches him. This was from earlier in the season, he was kind of comparing himself to the likes of Jose Mourinho and Alex Ferguson as compared to your Wenger's, your Pellegrini's, uh, <laughs> and your Rogers's, who, who, don't, uh, who don't really do that. Incidentally, Martinez uh, did uh, mention after this game, I mean, we, in which he talked exclusively almost about how proud he was of his players to have got to two all after 120 minutes, even though they were down to 10 men for a lot of the game. McGeady, incidentally, mm-hmm. being the man who uh, wasn't a great moment for Aidan McGeady. That's the kind of thing I'm afraid that supporters will start to hold against the player. 
you need to do some things to start compensating for that because it was a really stupid second yellow card particularly um, so hopefully you know he's able to recover from that there but uh, the talk was about Seamus Coleman and there's been quite a few rumours around that Manchester United are looking at him interested in signing in possibly in China Rio Martinez says we are not entertaining that speculation of big sales we are not going to sell our big assets in the window so all those stories and admiration from the outside are just a waste of time Okay, so that is the end of Kennedy's report on sport. You can see the level of expectancy. Coach, this is the game you wanted a victory, boy. It didn't happen. What happened? Oh, that made such an idiot. A game that they've been looking forward to for a long time. Where do you where do you think you got it all wrong today? And then Pepe just ruins it for everyone. Thanks a lot, Pepe. You can see the level of expectancy. The neighbor was saying he'll take that penalty. He was fucking dreading. Sorry, huh? We're not we're here. Oh, we're not, are we? We are. Oh. Well, I apologize for that, but obviously, he didn't exactly do it. All right. by uh, Miguel Delaney Miguel a very quiet transfer window uh, thus far but here come Manchester City they've signed Wilfred Bonney for £25 million becoming uh, the most expensive African player of all time in the process is he good enough to make a difference in the title race this year? Um, Well I think the first thing is that it it solves a very obvious problem for City so in that sense it, it could do and I think there's an interesting context to this because I mean obviously there's been so many questions about whether Boney is actually up to that level but, I mean, one person who very much seems to think he does is Jose Mourinho, who wanted him back in August. But Chelsea ultimately went for uh, Remy because uh, they could do the deal easier. And you'd wonder now whether, whether the decision on both ends uh, could, could end up costing Mourinho. Uh, I mean, we've seen it a few times this season, once Dzeko and Aguero have been out, City have had to improvise a lot. Um, and Boney will, will solve that problem. Uh, I, I think he's got a few goals, and I, I, think, he, I think he is uh, up to that level. Uh, whether it actually decides a title is another issue. I still think I'd fancy Chelsea, but it it, it, uh, it could be a much more relentless race now. Well, that Mourinho sort of subplot is interesting because you say he, he might pay for the decision, but it's clearly not his decision. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, this I, and again, I suppose it comes back to like, like with City and, and their own issues. I think it's interesting that they spent uh, what exactly 25 million is it because I remember hearing that was the exact figure that the regulations left them with before the window. They only had this money to spend, so they've gone and used it on Boney. Whereas obviously Chelsea have had to conform to to those concerns as well, and I think that was the root of the um, the Remy decision. The fact that they they knew they needed to do it so much easier, it would have required much more negotiation with Swansea and potentially a big fee. Although I I doubt if in August it would have been twenty five million. No, I, I I can't imagine it could possibly have been that much. And Jose Mourinho is not a man who likes paying for uh, or you know picking up the tab for other people's bad decisions. Well, well, um, this, this is exactly. I mean, this, this is particularly interesting if it does come down to maybe Boney kind of swinging it. Uh, because I mean, Lampard how many times and Bonnie Mourinho make a signing specifically to basically block someone else uh, getting him? Or to, to, I mean, I think we saw it with Willian. Even okay, he's become a key Chelsea player, but when he signed, he wasn't. He wasn't initially used like that. He basically stopped Spurs. Same with Mohamed Salah. So it's been. It, it has been a Mourinho tactic in the past. You, you wonder how he feels about it. Tomorrow's press conference could be more interesting and recent in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it could turn out. To, that Remy wasn't that cheap at the price. If if you also have to factor in the cost of um, of a discombobulated Jose Mourinho. Although I suppose if he was to if he was to uh, take his concerns to the club and uh, make a couple of complaints, um, they could always turn around and say, "Yeah, well, at least Bonnie hasn't actually scored any goals for uh, Manchester City yet." Unlike uh, Super Frank, Super Frankie Lampard, the man who you uh, thought was finished <laughs> at this level. I mean, that that was Mourinho's decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think Mourinho was very specific about it before Christmas in one of his kind of post-match press comments after, I think it was the West Brom game, saying that um, basically he he had to get rid of Lampard because of uh, it would have affected the, the development of his midfield. To be fair, there probably is kind of some merit in that because I think with the Lampard case, he was such a power at Chelsea that you would have imagined that could have become a problem. He mightn't have accepted or he mightn't have been so he mightn't have so readily accepted his reduced role. Whereas at City, it's like kind of different. He's basically grateful to the opportunity, 
Um, so he's always so been much more willing to kind of, you know, conform in that sense. He, I mean, well, well, yeah, do you, I mean, think, I mean, do you I mean, think, though, because I don't understand why he wouldn't have been able to adapt to it. He's, he's not playing any more for Manchester City than he possibly would have done for, for Chelsea as a, as a kind of a backup, you know, sort of in the Paul Scholes type situation. I imagine he certainly would have stayed at Chelsea. I, I, if they... I, I, I mean, this is pure speculation on my part, but I put it down to it's a bit of almost a Ferguson power play from Mourinho. If you have anyone, you know, I suppose with all these things, players are allowed power, a certain amount of power so long as they're uh, producing what he needs in the pitch. Lampard wasn't quite capable of the productivity that Mourinho would have wanted anymore. So maybe he couldn't countenance one player with that with that much influence. Well, I think it looks a, it looks a worse decision as the season goes on, and and especially seeing as you know Chelsea have have used their kind of core group of players so so yeah. much. Uh, it, it would have been helpful to to be able to call in a guy like that yeah, from time to time and to plug him. And the other side of it as well is, I mean, Chelsea actually, it's Fab- Fabregas. I think is probably their most important player in that sense because if he's out of the team, well, then they've got really nothing got else nothing, linking yeah. the defensive midfield and the attack, or mm. and that kind of trio behind Costa. And Lampard, at least, even if he doesn't have kind of uh, Fabregas's nuance in terms of creativity, he'll get, he would get goals from that position. Although Mourinho did seem reluctant to kind of to use him there la- last season. But yeah, like uh, I mean, you'd almost think for all the talk about strikers, Chelsea maybe need to sign a kind of a deputy to Fabregas this this window. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it doesn't look as though. Um, well, unless something very unexpected happens, uh, we're going to have to wait a while to see Bonnie actually play for Man City because he's going to be playing in the African Cup of Nations for the next uh, couple of weeks at least. But I wanted to ask you, Miguel, about uh, Zurich. You were over there for the awards gala on Monday. Uh, I know you think the award has lost its soul in the four years or so that it's been running. Uh, I just wanted to ask you about your impressions of the event itself and uh, what it was like to, uh, what it was like, what the atmosphere was like and what it was like to cover. Um, well, I suppose we're slightly constrained because we spent the, uh, pretty much the entire day in a media hall. So that's about 11 hours in the one room. And we, we just, it, it, it's uh, beside the main auditorium and they bring in all the, um, all the nominees are brought in for press conferences. Um, I found it quite entertaining event in many ways, interesting and slightly odd one as well. I mean, even the entire get-up of the stage and the colour tones and all that actually reminded me of, um, remember those, those videos that leaked, leaked of Tom Cruise and those Scientology videos? Yeah, where he's where he's sort of talking about uh, sort of the charms of Scientology. Yeah, yeah, and it, without without stretching the comparison, so much of it, and we really were getting the positivity of FIFA kind of rammed down our throats. I mean, when um, b- before the main awards, uh, they brought up all the nominees on stage for the um, for for separate press conferences. So say like Neuer, Messi, and um, and Ronaldo were up on stage together but before like you know and there was a FIFA media officer doing asking the questions and the first two questions one of them was about the the positives of the year and the organization of the world cup the second was about the the beneficial effect of goal line te- technology so you know all the burning issues and of course all um all, all of the all of FIFA's plus points funnily enough yeah. um and and that was pretty much the team of the whole evening it was such a i suppose it's it's one rare night like like in that maybe an extension of that, of that famous film that you've discussed in the show before, where FIFA gets to really aggressively push their image without too much questioning. Yeah, did the journalists actually get to ask any questions? There was two or three at the end, uh, which ultimately actually created the most um, interesting line, because, I mean, that press conference was so bland. I mean, there was one point where um, the, the players were asked who their, uh, which player from the past they'd most like to play with. And not one of them would name it for name a single player for fear of offending someone. I think those were exact words from Messi. I don't want to offend anyone. So I mean, this was the general tone of it. Then right at the end, Messi's asked about his future. Or he just drops this bomb. I don't know where I'll be in a year. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to be rushing back to cover it next year. Um. Well, the thing is, it's quite int- from the, I suppose from, from a networking perspective and that kind of thing. It's actually quite a. It, it, it's quite it's quite interesting. Although obviously, uh, nobody wants to hear this, Miguel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, in terms of covering the event, I, I wouldn't. Um, I, 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 I wouldn't be uh, too pushed. Okay, Miguel. Thanks for for. Uh, there's, no, there's no Oscar-style parties afterwards either. For joining us on the show today. Cheers. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? 
How are you, lads? Richie. How are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Yeah, Ken, you can flag off FIFA for making their award ceremony an infomercial about how great FIFA is, but that's kind of the point of hosting an award ceremony, really, isn't it? I don't see the Golden Globes being too harsh on the Hollywood foreign press. Or... That's kind of the... It is kind of the, the idea. You know, you pay all this money, you give everyone a very nice dinner, you hand out awards to some people who have attended, and in return you get to talk about yourself and how brilliant you are for, for a few... at least a few minutes of that. Yeah. Uh, now, there was... Um I didn't want Miguel to talk too much about his, his networking. It's like that uh, quote, is it Otto von Bismarck, Kieran? Maybe you'll correct me. Um, Laws are like sausages. Uh, it's better not to see them being made. Being made and yes. I think journalistic, uh, journalistic <laughs> connections probably fall into the same category. Well, yes, but I, I, I hope he enjoyed himself nevertheless. Uh, Gabriel Marcotti's on the line now. Uh, Gabriel, thanks so for joining us. David Louise made it into the FIFA Pro Team of the Year. We were discussing this a little earlier on. And uh, Ken here doesn't actually think that including uh, David Louise is, is all that crazy. What do you think? I mean, look, I, I, I would not have had him, but the fact of the matter is 23,000 and change professional footballers went out and, and voted in this. And they could pick any centre-back in the world. And they picked David Luiz. They also picked, you know, three center backs in the back four. But hey, that's ex footballers for you. People who are very good. Sorry, that's current footballers for you. People who are very good at doing something um, aren't always the best people at sort of uh, judging about judging it, or or indeed they may not watch that much football. There are a few um, issues um, kind of around that that we, that we can talk about, but just specifically on David Luiz. Um, he will always have to carry that 7-1 around his neck like an albatross, but he has also had a lot of good games. I mean, I remember seeing this guy in the Champions League final in 2012. Um, one of the reasons why Chelsea were able to, to win that trophy uh, in Munich, he gets signed by Paris Saint-Germain for £50 million, um, not because uh, of his nice hair. Um, is he... Is he <laughs> it's ridiculous for a guy who's just been named in the team of the year, but... Uh, he seems to just get such a trashing um, from everybody, particularly surrounding English football, which I happen to think is a bit unfair. Well, I mean, I, I think what gets you about about David Luiz is, yeah, I, I, I agree. Well, first of all, I think there are certain players who have a certain look or a certain way of playing that, um, that 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 simply doesn't fit with the with the English ethos, and and he's one of them. Um, I think on top of that, what really frustrates, especially ex-pros, when they look at him and they see that, you know, he's quick, he's big, he's good in the air, he's good on the ball, um, he doesn't add up to the sum of his parts. Uh, and I think that's almost like a, a lot of people look at it and, and they say it's, it's a bit of a greater crime, you know, because English football likes people who, who try hard and give him the effort. And the assumption is that if he's not as good as the sum of his parts, you know, there's something wrong with him. He's not trying as hard. He's not as hungry, and you know all these qualities that we supposedly value. Um, all that said, I mean, he's voted in as a central defender in there. Like you said, he gave up seven goals against Germany, um, and you've had three successive managers in uh, Robbie Di Matteo, Rafa Benitez, and um, uh, and Jose Mourinho. Uh, and arguably, actually, AVB and Carlo Ancelotti before that, who you know didn't look at him and say you're the best centre back in the world. Oh, I'm but Villas Boas did say that. Villas, well, Villas Boas said more specifically he will be. This was after when Gary Neville said the the PlayStation thing. You know, Gary Neville, he looks like a child. You know, he's being controlled by a child in the stands. Villas Boas said in two years' time he'll be the best central defender in the world, and the, the FIFA Pro Eleven seems to bear out Villas Boas's words. That's, then hey, then more power to Villas Boas. Um, you know, everybody's got opinions, but what I can say is Mourinho, Benitez, and Di Matteo, who you know are three very different people uh, with different outlooks, all feel 
slightly different. So, mm. you know, I, I don't think there is scope to, to question to question David Luiz. There's no question. Um, does it mean that you know we go out and we absolutely ridicule him like some kind of you know rubbish buffoon who who you know couldn't start for for any team in the Premier League? Blah blah blah. No, we don't, and and sadly many do. There is, I mean, you, you mentioned ex-pros maybe don't don't like his style or something about him they don't like, but obviously the current pros do seem to rate him. I mean, they, you know, sticking him in the, the world team. Now, what do you think is this is really a reflection of? Uh, I mean, you could say, could argue it's a reflection of his quality. Um, you could say that it's a reflection of his, uh, of his or, or maybe the lack of quality of, of other defenders. Maybe there aren't that many good defenders around at the moment, and he does stand out as, as the best of a bad bunch. Or is it maybe the reflection more of his... Um, of his profile, not necessarily his hair as such, but the but uh, the fame that he has as a guy who plays for big teams and big matches, which everybody watches on TV. Well, I think the latter has has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, it's it seems funny that if, if you know if you go around and you ask yourself, you know, what are the three best teams in the world right now? Or in fact, you you can extend it to four, right? If you look at hypothetically, uh, uh, you know, Chelsea, Barcelona, Bayern. Um, Real Madrid, um, Manchester City. You know, you look at these clubs and you ask yourself, who are the great defenders on those clubs? And you see that you know there's a lot of people who don't like Sergio Ramos. There's a lot of people who don't like Jerome Boateng, which I think is absurd. I think Jerome Boateng, in in 2014, for my money, um, has been as good as any central defender in the world. Um, a lot of people criticized Dimitri to high heaven until then they decided they kind of liked him. A lot of people still don't like John Terry, um, and they, you know, obviously there's reasons off the pitch. They're not going to stop well. uh, stop disliking John Terry, no matter how well he plays. I don't think. Well, that, that's that, that's what I mean. So, I, I think you know there's a greater criticism placed on central defenders, and I think the flip side though is there's also defenders that we like tend to go on reputation longer. I I really love Vincent Company as a person. Um, I love the way he talks and. I, I love the things he says. I like the way he plays. He's 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 been phenomenal for a long time. I don't think he's been playing at a Vincent Company type level um, at times in the, in the past eighteen months. But of course, you never hear that, right? All you hear about is you know how can you have David Luiz and not and not Company? Thiago Silva is another one. You know, we're so used to saying he's the best defender in the world that well, actually, you know, in he's had a really tough. Uh, six months at, at, at PSG. Arguably, David Luiz has played much better than he has at PSG, for example. So, you know, it, it's. I think reputations um, really matter a lot with central defenders, especially the ones where we maybe don't get to see them play in person, or you know, a lot of times we see highlights of their team of their teams conceding goals. You know, we see Bayern, uh, for example, win win five one. And then we see on the Bayern goal, somebody pipes up and is like, well, what's Boateng doing there? And, you know, never mind that maybe he was doing the right thing or maybe for the other 89 minutes, you know, he was absolutely flawless. Uh, an issue that you've raised uh, after we, we've seen the awards uh, come and go, the FIFA awards, and there's 55 players on the shortlist for the Ballon d'Or. 58% of the players on the list play for one of three clubs, Barcelona, Real Madrid and... Bayern Munich, which seems like quite a concentration, but has it not always been this way? Well, first of all, the answer is no, it hasn't always been this way. Um, we need to knock this on the head, uh, I think, pretty quickly. Uh, it's not normal that all the best players play for a small number of teams. That, that's out of kilter with the way football's been uh, for most of its history. In part, it was because uh, you had restrictions on the numbers of, of foreigners, so, you know, if I'm Barcelona or Real Madrid, I need to have eight Spanish players in my, in my starting 11, and I can't just go and get the best players from around the world regardless of where they're from. So, so that right off the bat. I mean, you know, if you think Chelsea and City are, are very good teams, here's a game you can play. You know, repl- keep, choose your three best foreigners and replace the others with English players and then see what the team looks like. Um, and, that, and that is what football was like until Bosman. So... First of all, that's you know that's just a myth. The other reason it's a myth is that yes, you always had obviously bigger clubs in in uh, in certain countries who would go and and they buy players from lesser clubs. You know, uh, 
but I think what's happened is that the boom in, in, in commercial revenue in, in football has disproportionately favored you know, a small number of, of global brands, uh, and equally uh, the, uh, the boom in Champions League revenues has, has, has favored a small number of, of global brands. And so this has created uh, a situation where you know, clubs, and that's been mentioned before, but Porto, Celtic, Benfica, Ajax, and so on, these guys can't hang on to their best players. In fact, they generally can't sell their players um, for, they generally actually sell their players for, for less than what they might otherwise be worth because they need the cash. Because, you know, 10 million is an enormous amount of money to um, Celtic and, and, and Ajax and, and, and clubs like this. Um, Porto, again, is a special case. They have sold guys for a lot of money, but a lot of those guys are third party owned, so they actually get very little back anyway. Uh, so, so no, it hasn't, it hasn't always been this way. Uh, it's certainly far more polarized than it's ever been. The, the, the differences in total wage bills, everything is a lot, a lot more polarized than it's been. Financial fair play has also contributed to this, although the process had begun before financial fair play. Um, and I think it's just something that we need to think about and we need to decide, we should have a debate over is, you know, is this good for the game? Is this what we want going forward? Because we are, we are marching straight towards a European Super League. Yeah, I mean, well, there's, there's a few things about that. I mean, number one, is the current situation actually a problem in terms of the long-term future of the game? Is it actually uh, a threat to the popularity of the sport? to see it dominated at the at the top level. I mean, we're talking about the Champions League here, really, uh, by the same teams. I mean, even you know, we can look and see that Atletico Madrid managed to get to the final. Dortmund got to the final. Um, they didn't actually win it. Uh, we, we, we have seen these kinds of stories uh, happen in the competition. Um, but is it a problem that you increasingly you're looking and, and seeing it's Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, maybe Chelsea. These are the same teams uh, that are getting there every year. Uh, because when you look around uh, the history of say you know, European leagues you find they are they are often dominated by two or three teams or you know one or two teams in, in most cases and it doesn't seem to have done anything to dent their popularity well um, I think in terms of, of a local phenomenon um, yeah you you've had certain teams that were dominant I'd argue that the dominance has increased in most European leagues uh, you know Olympiacos, I think they've won something like, you know, they've won the most Greek championships and they've won something like 17 of the last 20 or something absurd like that. They were winning more before, but they weren't winning this much more and they weren't winning by, by these types of, of margins, for example. Um, you mentioned Borussia Dortmund and Atletico Madrid. Well, you know, Borussia Dortmund um, have the 11th highest turnover in the world. So I would argue that they are part of the, of the elite super clubs. Um, and, uh, and they also have the highest average attendance, of course, in, in Europe as well. Uh, Atletico Madrid is a bit of an outlier, but again, what, what, what fueled that, you know, absurd amounts of debt, some of it to the tax man, which they were able to, to renegotiate and then write some of it right off, some of it pay off and enormous installments, uh, a lot of third party financing. And that's how they were able to do it. But even then it kind of becomes like a one year superhuman effort and then they go and and they they lose you know three of their of their best players from one year to the next because because that's what happens you know uh, even when you can achieve success it, it tends to be a one off thing Lille right sorry not Lille Lyon right now um, under Fournier in in France you know they're top of the league they're ahead of Paris Saint Germain and Monaco and Marseille and all this jazz they've got uh, eight starters coming from from the youth academy. Odds are, um, a year from now, two or three of those guys will be gone. Um, they, it's not something that they can that they can necessarily build on. And we're talking about Leon, you know, a team that uh, what won seven consecutive French titles around the turn of the millennium, and that were were free spending a few years ago. Uh, it's it, it's a scenario where everything is generally geared towards the bigger, wealthier clubs, and and, and they uh, they sooner or later later get all the players. Yeah, I mean it is. I mean, you mentioned Dortmund being eleventh in the, you know, eleventh in terms of turnover, but they still automatically lose uh, their best players, uh, you know, to bigger clubs once they 
you know, even the even the team that's the, even a team that rich can't actually afford to hang on to a player like uh, Lewandowski. But I mean, you writing about this, you um, you had a line, and I can't quite work out what it is that you think about this. You've mentioned the European League there as well. You say maybe one day some rich and powerful guys will wake up and realize that given the imbalance in resources. Uh, the biggest clubs are better off simply playing each other in a European Super League with no promotion or relegation. Do you think they are better off? Is that is that your opinion? You think that they would be better off? And if so, why? And if not, why not? I think they, as in the clubs, would be better off because you know, in terms of in terms of bottom line, right? So, if you had a European Super League with no promotion and relegation, we're talking an NFL style, some style. kind of NFL style thing. Um, you know, you uh, these are teams that always sell out and will likely always sell out because they have big stadiums in big cities. You can't build a 200,000-seat stadium because then you get diminishing returns, right? So if you have your stadium of sixty to 80,000 with the corporate boxes and you always fill it, then you're fine. If you're in a big city with, with a good airport and you're a global brand, you will always, always sell out. I mean, Arsenal, are, I think, are, are, are evidence of this, right? So there's only so much you can actually make in terms of, uh, in terms of gate receipts. The, your real growth is going to be commercial income, sponsorship, TV, and so on. And the way you get more, most exposure isn't by playing Burnley, it's by playing Barcelona. This idea that we might all get bored with it, well, we don't get bored seeing uh, you know, Chelsea play Burnley, um, so why would we get bored seeing Chelsea play Barcelona or Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund? Uh, and the economics of it are such that that is the, the direction in, I think, in, in, in which we're heading. And it's, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing for, for football as we know it. And, and I think it's something that, that needs to be looked at before this group of big clubs become so powerful that they can go ahead and 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 do whatever they like uh, that's that i think is the real risk i mean look you you look at this further right you look at this further you take those those top 11 top 12 clubs you you chuck in some other clubs in certain cities that you know you think are important um you know whether it's whether it's rome whether it's berlin you know you create some franchises some super clubs there and then all of a sudden you've got most of Europe covered and you've got a major TV spectacle. And once you take out the threat of relegation, the threat of, you know, right now the Champions League is the threat of not qualifying, as Manchester United know all too well. Once that risk is gone, then the risk of losing those, those 20 to 40 million that United would normally make for the Champions League is gone. Then they can write those down and it's, it's guaranteed money. Throw in financial fair play and they're guaranteed profits. So yeah, if I own one of those clubs, it becomes effectively a license to print money. Not for the very biggest clubs, though. I mean, it's in the, the current system you would have thought suits them um, absolutely fine. I mean, they've, they've almost got a monopoly on the best players. They're making money hand over fist. Um, it seems like, you know, they, they'd be they'd have to be restrained by any such system. I mean, there, you know, there, there are so many obstacles to, to bringing in a system like that. Um, you know, it's hard to really to know where well, to start. I mean, the idea. What I would argue, though, is that because of the threat of a breakaway European Super League, UEFA have bent over backwards. So, for example, and I, I don't know how many of your listeners know this, but we think of the the Champions League and, and clubs, you know, getting prize money for for advancing in the Champions League. So, if you get to the final, you get more than if you get knocked out in the group stage. Everybody knows that. What I don't think everybody knows is that. Only roughly about 55 to 60 percent of Champions League um, uh, monies gets distributed as prize money. The rest of it gets distributed by something called uh, the market pool. The market pool it means that basically, if you participate in the Champions League, you get a proportion of what your country, uh, your country's broadcasters, pay for TV income. So what that means, if you're in a wealthy country with a big TV contract, or even just a big country uh, like uh, Britain or Germany or Italy, you will earn more money than if you are uh, from a smaller country. So if Porto, for example, win the Champions League, you know they'll probably get something like 20 to 25 million less than if Juventus or uh, or, or Manchester City win win the Champions League. I think that's frankly 
you know, grossly unfair and ends up favoring, again, uh, the bigger teams in the bigger leagues. On a purely practical level, I mean, this is just the, the NFL, for instance, is split into conferences uh, along geographical lines. That's not really possible in Europe, is it? I mean, you're asking a lot of players. I mean, we, we, we can wave goodbye to the idea of having away support at, at most matches, I guess. Um, it becomes unfeasible if you're being required to travel abroad every uh, couple of weeks. But what about from the point of view of demands on the players? Um, is it not asking a little bit much? Europe is quite a big uh, area uh, to, to ask teams to be sort of traveling around for games uh, every week. Right. Well, first of all, I want to make it clear as a reminder that I'm not advocating a European Super League. I don't so you think, think you think a, this is a bad idea? I, I, I'm not in favor of a European Super League, but I'm saying is that's the way that's the way we're going. Um, and it's sometimes difficult to stand in the way of, of, of market forces and, and, and in and history unless you you take certain steps. Um, but in terms of the European travel, I mean, you know, you can you can easily look at this and, you know, you raise a point you know, pretty much everywhere in Europe is within uh, a, a three hour flight with the exception of, you know, maybe Moscow and, and Istanbul and, and whatever. I don't think that's so much of an issue. The point with away support um, in the NFL, for example, there is very little away support, but maybe away support changes a little bit. You know, you look at how many players Manchester, sorry, how many fans Manchester United take away take to away games in the Premier League, right? Where it's uh, uh, where it's easy to get away travel. Uh, it obviously depends on on the size of the stadium they're playing in, but I would imagine that given that most of the Premier League games sell out anyway. Uh, they can rarely take for a, for a league match more than more than four or four or five thousand, and I would imagine that they sell out their allocation all the time. So maybe what you do is you you change it around so that instead of having guys who travel to every single United away game, uh, there'd be enough demand there that maybe you travel to you know four or five away games over the year, and y'all in Ireland know all about Ryanair and cheap carriers, and maybe you can throw in charters and whatever else. You know that for most away games, the cost of 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 perhaps a charter flight, you know, isn't going to be much more than the cost of a coach. And maybe you don't do it every week. Maybe you you do it a couple times a year. I you know I I don't know that they particularly care about this. That you know stuff like traveling support, you know, is a lot less of an issue. The other thing too to remember is that you know there's Real Madrid fans in every country in Europe, and there's United fans in every country in Europe. Uh, maybe they just figure you have a rethink where if you know United play in Moscow, uh, there will be a full allocation of United away fans there. It's just that you know, rather than you know Steve and Ramesh, their names might be uh, you know Igor and Ivan. Yeah, I I was in Los Angeles last month and met some LA Galaxy fans who were talking about their disgust at the friendly that LA played against Manchester United in Pasadena. Uh, in which there was eighty thousand Manchester United fans at the Rose Bowl to uh, to see their their team and the LA Galaxy uh, ultras were talking about how deli- how delighted they were to get the opportunity to beat up Manchester United fans um, in in this circumstance, considering them considering it entirely legitimate uh, to express uh, through violence their contempt for these people who choose to support a team situated uh, one third of the world away. Um, so I don't know uh, about the prospects of Manchester United fans packing out the Luzhniki and running the gauntlet of the uh, uh, the local Patriots. Um, but I mean, assuming, say, for instance, that this is actually a problem uh, with this uh, this situation of you know concentration, you know, at three or four or five top clubs who are going to win everything and monopolise the best players. Assuming that the kind of root and branch reform you've been outlining is actually impossible to achieve in practice. Um, that the foreigner rule can't be, you know, which is maybe a shortcut uh, to leveling things out, can't be uh, can't be reintroduced under European Union law, uh, and that efforts which have been made so far, like financial fair play, actually tend to entrench this system rather than to uh, rather than towards uh, redistribution. What actually can be done to stop this process that we've been talking about? Is there is there any way in which uh, football can restrain? Um, the leading clubs to create a little bit more of an equitable uh, competitive situation um, 
which it, does which doesn't involve completely restructuring the whole thing in a way that it looks impossible to achieve in practical terms. It's extremely difficult. Um, there are, and it's extremely difficult because you know UEFA can't just come in and say, okay, we're going to have a salary cap tomorrow. We're going to have a luxury cap tomorrow. The minute UEFA try and turn the screws on the bigger clubs and they see their revenue fall, perhaps by limiting the market pool, which is one obvious way to do it, um, then you you have the threat of the breakaway European Super League again, you know, run by the clubs for the clubs. So uh, that's the problem. That said, I think there are certain things you can you can do. Um, you can increase the homegrown player requirement, uh, which is you know. It, it's, it's problematic in other ways, but it, it, it is effectively the same thing as limits on foreigners. Um, you can, uh, uh, the other big thing, which I would love for them to look at, um, and they did set a precedent uh, in the sense that UEFA will allow it because it's what they've done in women's football, um, and that's merging leagues of sort of medium-sized countries. Uh, so, for example, the, the, the Dutch women's top flight merged with the Belgian women's top flight. And the reason they did this was to create more critical mass, raise the standard of competition. So I can see how that would happen. That could happen with Belgium and Holland, but I'm struggling to think of another, maybe Norway and Sweden. There aren't too you many. Could have, you could have a Scandinavian um, Super League. Uh, you could have, obviously, there was the proposal of the Atlantic League a few years back, um, where you know it would have been Portugal, Scotland, um, Belgium, and Holland, for example. Uh, and, you know, you would, it would need to be a situation where you would get promoted and relegated from what's left of your national championship. Maybe you could continue competing in your, in your, national, uh, in your national cups. Um, but the idea is then, you know, if you were to, to take, say, the, the top four, the top five teams from those four nations, um, you know, Atlantic, let's talk about the Atlantic League, it's the most obvious one, right? Belgium, Holland, uh, Portugal, and, uh, and Scotland. Um, who knows? Maybe you could check in a Dublin team, maybe as well. I don't know. But you would create, you know, an economy of like 80, 90 million people with a, with a gross domestic prob, uh, product, which would be, you know, probably uh, comparable to, 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 to say that of, uh, of France or, or England. Um, you would have average attendance, you know, just based on what it is now, in excess of 30,000. Uh, you would have a good standard league. And that would mean that they could get a good sponsorship deal. They would get a, a good TV contract. And then maybe you can start, you know, having teams that can compete on that level. Because what you have right now is that teams can outspend other teams by effectively an accident of geography. You know, God decreed that Newcastle should be part of England and not part of Scotland. And that's why Newcastle or, or Sunderland, you know, get the, the kind of TV money and the kind of full stadiums that you know teams like Ajax or, or Porto can only dream about, even though those teams have bigger historical supports and have been and have been more more successful historically. Um, I think this would help address that. You could get more big teams, and if you can do that, then maybe you can stave off the the, the Super League uh, a little bit longer. That's great, Cap. Thanks, man. No problem. Okay, I might uh, drag you back to something that uh, uh, you mentioned at the start of that conversation there, Ken, that 58% of the 55 players uh, named as part of the FIFA Players of the Year came from three clubs, Yeah, uh, which is actually bizarre with the more you think about it. Real, uh, Barcelona and Bayern Munich. Mm. But they would uh, account for over half of the 55 best players in the world. Yeah, well, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you know... Uh I mean, in, in that sort of a situation, when you're talking about David Luiz making the team, now obviously David Luiz doesn't play for either of those three teams. But when you're thinking that the, playing, that the pool of players that you're selecting from is basically five or six of the best club teams in Europe, you, there's not actually that many alternatives to David Luiz if that's the narrow view of world football that you're actually taking. Yeah, I mean, you know, Sergio Ramos is there and... I don't think it's. I think he's been an outstanding defender this year. He certainly got ripped to pieces in the World Cup. Um, he did score the crucial goals in the Champions League. Mm. Uh, he scored the goals against Bayern Munich and against Atletico Madrid. Madrid um, that really counted um, for that. But you know, it is. It's it's got to the point now where um, you know 
it's for I mean Gabriella there was talking about Borussia Dortmund uh, you know we've seen them lose their players consistently uh, to the teams above them in this league uh, the the money league I'm talking about mm. here Liverpool for instance are 12th um, they had no hope of holding on to Suarez they couldn't hold on to Mascherano you know um, he's also at you know it's it's even what I'm saying is that even the teams uh, even teams in the top 20 richest clubs mm. in the world are essentially it's farm the, teams. Yeah, it's not the top five robbing from the teams placed 25th to 50th. It's the top five robbing from the teams directly below them from 5th to 10th. <laughs> yeah, even even the, even those teams from, you know, f- 5 to 15 are just uh, are just there to uh, feed the feed the ones above them. And that is a, a little bit... Uh, I mean, the the there is obviously a kind of a... The, it's You can only have a certain number of players. So it's quite a profitable strategy, I think, for for teams, those teams in the slightly lower category, to look at these uh, uh, really big sides uh, and pick up the players that they don't want anymore. And we've seen that happen with, uh, we've seen Bayern Munich do that to great effect by getting uh, Robin and more recently, uh, more recently Xabi Alonso. Um, Manchester United have Angel Di Maria. Um, Arsenal have picked up Alexis Sanchez. You know, these are world-class players just because they no longer were um, in the favourite category at Real Madrid, Barcelona and Bayern. But it seems that's that's almost the only way that you can have a world-class player and be sure that you can keep him is if he's already been to Barcelona yeah. or Real Madrid and they don't want him anymore. So Arsenal can be reasonably confident that they might hang on to Alexis Sanchez unless Manchester United, uh, a couple of places above them in the money league, decide... Maybe they'd like to have Alexis Sanchez. In which case, like Robin Van Mercy, they'll just take him. Mm. Okay, that's pretty much it. You can get in touch with us via the usual channels on Twitter at Second Captains, on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Second Captains, or via email, which is secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. We have a show out already from earlier today featuring US Murph and a chat with Fergus Connolly, who's uh, an Irishman uh, heading up the elite performance unit uh, with the San Francisco 49ers. Thank you very much, Ken. Thank you very much, Karen. And uh, Owen is back next Monday, so we'll chat to you then. Bye bye. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.